Welcome, everybody, to the Men for Life podcast. Uh, my name is Andrew Jacoby, and uh, I am joined in studio today by my good friend uh, Steve Boza. And uh, we will be joined by Pete DeMaio, the co-pilot for the Men for Life podcast. So Pete is running a little bit late. We're actually at the uh, recording from the Archdiocese today of Philadelphia. So it's very exciting. It's where Steve works. And so what we're going to do is I'm um, just going to uh, give a little introduction to who Steve is. Then we'll do a little prayer. And then we'll have a conversation um, about, uh, you know, the, the thing. We basically, we actually recorded this episode before Steve came in, but the recording didn't work. So again, we are redoing this. So I'll start off with Steve's um, bio. Steve B- uh, Boza is um, the director of the Office of Life and Family for the Archdiocese of Philadelphia and an adjunct professor of biomedical ethics and moral theology at Immaculata University in Immaculata, Pennsylvania, as well as the Catholic Distance University. I believe that's in um, West Virginia. Uh, He served as an editor, freelance writer, and media contact for the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, Department of Pro-Life Activities for for Issues Related to Artificial Reproductive Technologies. He has spoken and written extensively on infertility and marriage and sexuality. Mr. Boza has a Master's of Arts degree in Moral Theology from St. Charles Seminary in Wynwood, Pennsylvania. Uh, He did his postgraduate studies in bioethics at the Pontifical Athenaeum Regina Apostolorum in Rome. I don't know how I do, Steve. So, so, okay. And so, uh, uh, looking forward to having a conversation with Steve. But first, let's uh, let's start off in prayer, as we always do, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Thank you so much for giving us the opportunity today to discuss a culture of life here with Steve uh, and Pete, and we look forward to being able to um, do the best that we can to bring to light the truth of the faith, the truth of what it is that's important in this life. And we ask that you you bless this, our work here, and do with it something that um, brings into being that which you want and touches the hearts of those that are listening. So um, we ask this in in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, Steve, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day to uh, to speak with us. Oh, thanks for having me. This is a pleasure. Yeah. So, um, I wanted to start out with the first thing is as we as we talked about last time, the the purpose of the Men for Life podcast is we're trying to evangelize men, especially young men, about a culture of life. So that that starts off. We started off with a um, an abortion message, so an, an anti-abortion message, and so we can talk about that as well. But also in general, a culture of life, meaning abortion being the end result of a certain attitude. Um, and we believe that the church teaching about sexual ethics, the church teaching about um, morality is the solution, is the answer. And so, but there's a lot of young men, as you know, you were one, I was one, um, out there, and and they're confused in the culture. So I wanted to get your perspective. You're an expert on this. This is something that you've studied your whole life, the sort of the moral foundations of the church's teachings on all different sorts of matters, especially around reproductive uh, issues. And so I wanted to get your perspective on this. So maybe first, could you give a little bit of background to everybody, sort of how you came to your position here at the uh, working for the Archdiocese, a little bit about your journey? It's an interesting question, <clears throat> uh, my journey. Uh, you know, I grew up in a 
very Italian Catholic um, neighborhood and family and you know, we lived in South Philadelphia, and if you know anything about the diocese, Archdiocese of Philadelphia, there's a Catholic church every five or six blocks. <laughs> yeah. And um, <clears throat> the one church that I was baptized in, St. Thomas Aquinas, over in uh, 17th and uh, uh, Moore, I believe it is, and, um, and my family moved across the street, uh, or across Broad Street, and into uh, a neighborhood my father was was uh, had grown up in, and that was a um, – the parish there was St. Um, Nicholas of Tolentine. And at the time, we were taught – I started school there. And at the time, we were taught by these little Filipini sisters that are still here. They're still present in the archdiocese. Um, but at the time, they were all from Italy. And so we um, – they would teach us in broken English and – the nuns would get together and they would speak their native language. And it was just a wonderful experience. <clears throat> and so shortly after I started school there, my family decided they were going to move to New Jersey, which was pretty much a culture shock um, <clears throat> for me and my brothers because we were in a neighborhood that was not explicitly Italian. And so there was a lot of adjustment going on there. Um, <clears throat> so... I had uh, started school here, the Catholic school, and then went on to, I mean, in, then I went on to public school, uh, Audubon High School. And, you know, it, it was a time period that was in the in, in the midst of the six, 60s sexual revolution and everything was up. And, this is when you moved to New Jersey. Well, yeah, when we moved to New Jersey. And, you know, high school was kind of interesting because it was a mix of both cultures in terms of what was going on in the society and how we were all raised, at, you know, in our homes. So, you know, you, you as a teenage um, boy or a man or whatever you want to call us at that point in time, you know, we, we listen to our parents, but yet we do our thing. And um, my journey after that was not very honorable, I don't think. Um, <clears throat> and then it got to a place where, I know I knew I needed to make a switch. I knew I needed to make a, a change in my life. As a matter of fact, I went went on a um, retreat over at Malvern, right here in Philadelphia, because my uncles used to go there all the time, and <clears throat> so I was familiar that they that they had that. Um, when I called, this gentleman called me that was old enough to be my father, and he says, "Don't worry about it. I'll pick you up." And it's a good thing he did because I was stuck there for a weekend, which I could have very easily came home, but. You know, God in his, in his wisdom um, knew that that was not going to be what he had wanted for me. So during the course of the um, of the of the retreat, I, I just really was convicted. You know, I, w- I was convicted that I wasn't the man or the young man that uh, <clears throat> my parents raised. Or um, were how old were you at this point? At, the, at that time, retreat? I was probably about twenty seven. Okay, twenty six, twenty seven. And so uh, from there, I, I made some changes in my life, you know, and, uh, you know, moved away from, um, you know, the, the people that I was hanging out with. You know, that was the height of the disco era. And, this is know, the 70s. This is in the 70s. And, you know, you know, my friends and I, we would be out, you know, partying and having a good time and coming home at 4 o'clock in the morning, have to get up at 6 to go to work. And how I didn't kill myself, I just don't know. It was the grace of God. Um, but that stopped. 
you know, all that stopped and I, I needed to make some changes and I did and ran into a very, very wonderful group of young people my age that were following the Lord and that's where I met my wife and so, you know, it's been a journey <clears throat> to uh, move in a direction that God wanted me to move in. If you would have asked me at the time, would I really do some serious um, academic studies and obtaining degrees and whatnot and, and teaching Catholic theology, I would say you're you're crazy, man. Where was your head? Where was your mindset before that? Like, what were you thinking in first a career path? Didn't have one actually. So you're 27. You didn't know what you wanted. No, you were just doing. No, I didn't know what I was doing. I, you know, I worked with my in. <laughs> I worked in a factory where my father used to work years. What were you making ago. in the factory? Uh, you know, it was, it was just like one of these, I, I can't even tell you. It, it was uh, RCA in Camden, and mm. they had these line people working, and I found a job and I worked there, and not very happy, never, right. you know. Um, but I think, you know, through that conversion experience, you know, um, God spoke spoke to me about what my strengths were, what my gifts were, and... Um, went back to school, St. Charles Seminary, um, to get a master's there and, uh, found that, you know, theology and bioethics is really what I wanted to do. Did you think, were you discerning the priesthood at this point or cause the, uh, the seminary is, is a, it's a lot of priest, uh, formation. Well, yes and no. I mean, I, I, I thought of it, um, but it wasn't something that was really stuck in my, my heart and my mind. Um, St. Charles then and even now have a wonderful um, graduate studies program for adults that, you know, aren't, are laymen, that, um, you know, wanted to do a part-time type of study. And it was a wonderful experience, you know, a very, very wonderful experience being there. So, um, so I got my master's and then started working uh, for the Diocese of Camden and worked there for a little while. <clears throat> and then through some changes and and that sort of thing, I had kind of had some time where I wasn't working there through the layoffs and and uh, but it did continue on with my work with the um, with the USCCB. I, I I built some good relationships with them and I did some freelance writing for them and and then I uh, was hired here and um, continued where I left off and it's been a great journey, you know. It's been a great journey. Um. And yeah, and I kind of gravitated to bioethics more towards the beginning of life issues. And um, one of the things that I've learned over the years is that we're so rich in our theology and there's such truth to it. But sometimes I just don't think it's articulated in a way that's going to teach, you know, touch the hearts of the people who need to hear this message. Why do you think that is? I don't know, actually. Um, you know... And I and this isn't something that I would indict all pastoral care ministers because they're not like this. All all of them are not like this. But a lot of times I think that <clears throat> because they don't really know the intricacies, that blanket statements just don't work. And I and I've learned over the years that if I'm not able to going to be willing to walk with these persons, then I should just keep my mouth shut. You can't just, you, you can't, if somebody calls you and says, 
you know, I, I really we're not have, able to have children. We should, you know, what could we do? Could we do this? Could we do that? And if I just give them cold, pat answers, I'm going to lose them. Just going to lose them. Because you can't do that. <clears throat> you you have to kind of work with him. You have to kind of nosh the conversation. You have to kind of engage them. You kind of, you know, let them open up to you. And then when you have to speak the hard word, they've already gotten a trust with you. So that they know that I'm not just trying to be, you know, you know, this is what you can do. This is what you can't do. See you later. Have a good life. But if I am, if I'm willing to hold their hand, if I'm willing to let them cry on my shoulder, if I'm willing to, um, just introduce the hard word as we go along, you know, then we're much more able to penetrate the heart of people. So it's almost a pastoral relationship it has to that be. has to be first rather than just an intellectual discussion <laughs> about, right. hey, this is what the church would teach. This is what, this is what our guidance is. Right. It, it's got to be a, a pastoral thing. Because people today, and I would venture to say in our parents' time too, that people need more than just yes or no. You could do this. You can't do that. You can, and if you're going to say you can't do something, well, what's the alternative? So, these, so just to give some background to the listeners, people come to you with various bioethical quandaries, or say, "Hey, you know, my, my wife and I, we haven't been able to conceive. We'd really like a child. Are we able to do IVF?" Or is that? I mean, just, well, I'm, I'm, it, it's it doesn't really work that way. Um, sometimes they'll call you. Sometimes people already know what I'm going to say, so they just don't bother. Right. Um, and so it's it's not a matter of people calling me and giving me giving them advice. It's it's putting out there information that is going to help them before they pick up the phone call and call. I'll give you a classic example. Sure. Um. The Archbishop is going to celebrate Mass for us on the 31st for a, a Mass of Thanksgiving for the Dobbs case and the overturn of Roe versus Wade. And what we're doing in an office is putting together a booklet of pregnancy care centers. And the reason why we're doing that is because it's really important for the people out there to know that if you're in a problem pregnancy – Abortion is not your only choice. You know, we you have places out there that will hold your hand, that will walk with you, that will provide you with with um, information. They'll provide you with medical care. They'll provide you with um, food, all the things that you need. Housing. You know, we have to be very, very thankful here in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. I've been in this business for twenty five years. Nowhere have I seen the depth of cooperation between pro-life activities or respect life office that I would run and the Catholic social services. We are – we a lot of times – and I, I have to say this in all honesty – work as one. 
because they're because we do the same thing, only taking care of different angles, and and we are so fortunate here in Philadelphia that this alliance and this partnership exists between my office and CSS. Now I'm not going to pat myself on the back, but I'm I'm sure I have a role in that. But I do have to tell you that uh, Jim Amato and Amy Stoner, they have been just so gracious people, gracious, gracious, gracious people. Um, you don't see that anyplace else. You just don't. Yeah. See, like, the, so there's this sort of um, combination of the services to the woman or the, the woman that's struggling with the decision of, of having an abortion or not, along with the recommendations of the church. So it's not like we're going to let you off into the into the because this is a lot of the claim that comes from the pro-abort side is oh what are you doing you just don't want you just want to control women's bodies you're not there to help meaning there's no right and so it's almost like they they're willfully ignoring what you're talking about they're willfully, they're willfully ignoring the how many pre- crisis pregnancies there's three thousand of them or something nationwide I don't know how many in the archdiocese of Philadelphia area there's well we have quite a few and my response to that is. Bring it on, baby. Mm-hmm. Come and talk to me. I'll let you know. <clears throat> right. um, sometimes you can't reason with people. Sometimes you can. But in this climate, you know, it, it's better for us to be that. Um, and I want to use this term, but I'm not sure if it's the right term. That silent witness, mm-hmm. you know. I don't have to argue with somebody to say you're wrong. All I have to do is to give them the evidence. You figure this out yourself. You know, if you want to, this meaning the evidence of the humanity of the child <clears throat> and the, the obvious well, the evidence moral of evil of killing an, a human you, person. Give you the evidence of what we do. Uh, okay, you're talking. About, oh, okay, you were talking yeah. about the social services aspect, yeah. not the evidence of. Hey, here's. Yeah, okay. I mean, we could give that to them too if they have ears to see, ears to hear, and eyes to see. Right. You know, um, there's a lot of evidence of what goes on. We have a whole ministry to women called Project Rachel, or Rachel's Vineyard. You know, there's a number of different terms. It's post-abortion healing, basically. And I've worked with... This is post-abortive. Post-abortive okay. women. I, I've worked with um, these groups for years now, you know, especially when I was in the Diocese of Camden and, and even here. <clears throat> the, the trauma that women face because of their um, lost child or the abortion is is a tragedy that goes oftentimes unknown, unseen. It's a tragedy. The reverberations the of reverberations, it all the, of the... The re- reverberations, <clears throat> the, the ways that this damages a woman's psyche is, is uncanny. And it affects men, too. That's not talked a lot about. No. The sort of post-abortion. No. Sort of, it's, it's sort of presented in the culture as... Nowadays, I mean, when I was younger, and it, it was safe, legal, and rare. Now it's sort of a positive good. Shout yeah. your abortion. So right. it's almost like uh, I don't feel any guilt. It was the best thing I ever – I was listening I think one of my favorite bands, Fleetwood Mac. Uh, Stevie Nicks was saying, you know, if I never had my abortion, Fleetwood Mac never would have made an album, whatever, because I, you know, I, I got – sort of like this positive, mm-hmm. affirmative case for this was a good thing. 
me yeah. executing my child helped right. my career or look whatever. a mom is always going to be a mom right. a dad's always going to be a dad and so you know you could rip away that child from within her but she's still going to be carrying some cells of that child for the rest of her life from a physical in a physical in way. a physical way a woman gives birth and that's not the last time that she carries that child mm, right. inside her she's going to have that dna in her right all the time right. you know um motherhood and fatherhood are inseparable from masculinity and femininity interesting and the, what's also interesting is that and this is a discussion that's that happens quite often i don't want to be a mother and the question is is well you already are a mother if the child's in your womb meaning if you if you're post conception you're already a mother. It's just a question of what are you going to do with your child? Are you going to end its life or are you going to nurture it? Because you, you can't escape the motherhood piece. If you wanted to escape the motherhood piece, you shouldn't have engaged in the procreative act to begin with. That was your, op- that was your option to not be a mother. Now you are one. So the only question is like that other option is already off the table. Where I don't think people think that way. They sort of think, well, I can just erase it. By The abortion will erase the whole thing. Yeah, and I want to take this another direction too. Just by virtue of who we are as a man or, or who we are as a woman, we're already mothers and fathers. Right. Already. It, it, we don't have to have a child of our own to be a father or to be a mother. What do you mean by that? Oh, very simply. Because you, know, you have the reproductive no, capacity? No, no, It's It's that interior disposition that is inseparable from who we are. You know, um, and I can't speak for the, for the feminine perspective, although I, I'll give it a, tr- a shot, but I could tell you that from a masculine perspective, from a man's perspective, every time that you mentor or every time that you have a heart-to-heart or every time you do something um, socially with a young man, whether he's your son or he's not your son, you're being his father because you're teaching, you're modeling, you're expressing encouragement, you're expressing um this dissatisfaction and so that masculine presence that you have with say another boy or with even with a girl you know you find yourself wanting to protect her from whatever you know i mean how many men do i know that's out there with um their daughters say and mom's not there, but they have to go to the men. They have to go to the girl, their girl's room. Okay, so dad will be very vigilant and stay outside that door so that she is safe. Sure, you know to protect her. And so, just by virtue of what it means to be a man, to be leader, protector, and provider, you're also being a father to those people, those other persons around you. Right. You know that's. You can't separate that. Yeah. And it's the same principle for women. You know, how many women do we know that are so nurturing that will 
pick up a child if she's crying or, or you know, offer some kind of support or solace or what have you um, to this child that only she could give as, as a woman, as a, as, a, as a mother, you know. So we're moms and dads whether we know it or we don't. It's in our nature. It's in it's embedded in our DNA to do that. That brings up an interesting question, Steve. You were mentioning earlier <clears throat> this sort of transition that happened when you mentioned two transitions. I would say your one transition when you had that revelation where God revealed Himself to you and you changed your life. But you mentioned an earlier transition, which was this idea that there was a pre-revolution sexual, let's call it sexual sixties, whatever, however you want to determine. We call it the sexual revolution. Let's call it. That's a nice way of putting it. Um, you, you. So you grew up before that, and then at some point in your life that happened. So you got to see a before and after. Whereas if there's a young man listening to this today, he didn't get to see that before. He's only living in the aftermath of that revolution. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious on your perspective. Um, what were the changes that happened, especially on the men's? You know, for what it was to be a father, what it was to be a man in culture. What, what changes did you notice, both in your life and outside, what, you're, what you were witnessing in your context, from the before to the after? It's a good question. I don't know if I was ever asked that before. Um, <clears throat> I could say that if there's an attitude, okay, and I could talk about this in, in light of other people that I know, Um, if there's an attitude of conquest I don't know and I can't say for sure but I don't know if that existed before it could very well have but I'm really at a loss to be able to answer that question for you I'm sorry but I just think that things have gotten so open we're talking about things now that we've never talked about before you know, and um, and there's something to be about being reserved, I think. And if I could maybe fast forward to where we are now, what I would say to a young man coming up is cherish the woman or the young lady that you are interested in. So what does it mean to cherish? It, it means that you would have to treat her as if you were you were treating your sister, or respect her as you were would be respecting your sister. It means that you're not going to want to cause her to sin. And I think we've lost a sense of sin. You know, um, you know, unchastity is sin, basically, and I don't think people realize that. <clears throat> and so to say you're not going to be attracted to this woman that you work with or you're going to, going to school with, that's, that's nonsense. That's crazy. That's crazy talk. It's, and it's not even good talk. There's a healthy attraction. But with that healthy attraction, there comes, I think, a realization that she's not 
the fish out in, in in the in the water that you're trying to reel in so you could have a great meal that night. She's just not. You know, she's a person that you would want to bring into your sphere, but you got to realize that she's going to ask something of you. And what she's going to ask of you is that she be cherished. And so, I, and I think that there's a, there's a sense of selfish, selfishness that goes on where I want, I want, I want, I want without that balance of saying, I give, I give, I give, I give. Great. Thanks so much, Stephen. Actually, we just had a, we had our, uh, our co-host, our co-pilot just entered the studio. So Pete DeMaio is here. Uh, so we're lucky to have Pete uh, in the in the show. We were, Pete, we were talking to Steve about uh, we're just he was just going over a little bit about sort of um, let's just call it the before and after of the sexual revolution and sort of this idea of he grew up in a certain culture where there was expectations. Let's say the basic church teaching was affirmed by your family and by the other families in the area where you lived, and then all of a sudden this kind of foreign invading intellectual or cultural force came around this sort of free sex free love summer of love sexual revolution came around and caused a bunch of chaos and the young man today listening to our podcast is living in the aftermath of that chaos and i was trying to get um steve's perspective on what are the differences meaning what what happened and 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 what what about this new world should we be rejecting and what should we be affirming? So that's where we sort of were. I don't know if P, if you have any um, sort of uh, thoughts right off the bat. It, only that <clears throat> Steve and I, Steve's a dear friend of mine now and we've become friends over these last five years, but particularly close these last two years. And that's something that he and I share and we've discussed many, many times is this exact topic, which is this post-sexual revolution world, which and and we had a chance to discuss with this with the youth yesterday, Andrew, which was great to hear their perspective. It was like, hey, what's it like to be a teen in the world today growing up in this culture? They're actually being raised by the parents of that post-sexual revolution culture. And, and I know I was raised with it, and it's what we discussed yesterday on the podcast, which was – this did not bear good fruit for us as as a people as a as a you know a human population as a society and i was a product of of that so steve and i have discussed this because as a young man i never picked up these church encyclicals i was catholic i was an altar boy i mean we had priests over the house on sunday nights for dinner but but no one ever handed me Humane Vitae to read that encyclical. No one pointed me to Casti Canubii, which was on Christian marriage. And now, and now I meet someone like Steve, and he's become, as I said, my dear friend. And and we discuss, you know, these things. And and he is so just well, you know, read in in all these topics. And and that's something that Steve and I agree on very much. Is a lot of what we're seeing today in the world and in the culture really comes from that whole sexual revolution period um in comes the contraceptives and especially the contraceptive pill and and now we have a completely different you know society it's like this post you know that post the post contraceptive society yeah. essentially yeah, steve do you have any thoughts on i know you were yeah i think you know we can't look at this where we are today in a vacuum it's not something that just conjured up 
in a certain period of time. It's something that started chip by chip by chip by chip by chip until we're, we're this is where we are today, you know. Um, and I think that <clears throat> in looking back, I think the it all starts with the understanding of contraception. When we decided that that was the right thing for us to do, then it um, started a snowball until you find yourself where we are today. And it makes sense if you have that contraceptive mentality. It makes sense that the, say, the gay community would say, what makes me different any different than this couple? They decided they don't want to have kids. They shut that off. They have unitive um, sexual um, activity without the procreative all the time. So why can't I do it? Hmm. Well, guess what? They're right. Why can't they do it? Because once you've separated babies and sex using this technology or this mentality... Correct. Then where does it end? Where does it end? It doesn't end. It doesn't end. It doesn't end um, nicely. It just doesn't. <clears throat> Contraception, if that doesn't work, okay, well, now we're in a pregnancy. So now what do I do? Have an abortion. So it's almost a, it's, it's abortion then becomes another form, a last stop form of contraception, Absol- essentially. Absolutely. Because they wouldn't, they weren't expecting that, and now this is happening. How do you just? How do you kind of explain away the rise in STDs? Well, you can't, because contraception made it very easy. And you want to know the sad thing about this? And we're going to talk about this, I, I'm sure, down the road. But the sad thing about it is, whatever you put into your body, you urinate out. The amount of Hormone that is urinated into the system is not always taken up with the filtration systems that we have. You're drinking it. Our wives are drinking it. Everybody's drinking it. What have we seen over the past 10, 15 years? Well, we've seen a decrease in sperm counts in men. We've seen other types of issues with women. Infertility has increased exponentially over the over the past twenty or so years or thirty years. Simply not for just that reason, but you can't ignore the fact that they're ingesting water with synthetic hormones that aren't fully taken out of the filtration system. I have a, Steve. The a question I have is: How have you seen over time? We're talking about changes technologically and some philosophical or cultural changes. How have you seen society's view of men change over your lifetime? Oh man! And you don't want to get me started on that one. Well, I just, well <laughs> it's a Men for Life podcast. So. <laughs> you just pried a seal. I think Andrew. Let's go, Steve. I poked the bear on that. God one. Almighty. Um. I honestly think that the 60s were, were it was a decade, a demonic de- decade. Because from there, you're seeing all the social ills come to, come to fruition. 
So you asked, well, how do you see men today um, <clears throat> in light of this cultural reality? In the 60s, we had this, um, not only the sexual revolution, but we also had the feminist movement going on. And, you know, at the time, you had a lot of people, our, you know, my parents' age and that, you know, we're living in times where, you know, the leave it to beaver times, you know, where the men come home from work and, you know, he's treated very well by his family. All that stuff was turned up upside down during that feminist movement of the 60s and 70s. And it just didn't end with equality because that was a good thing. It just didn't end there. It got to a place where men were ridiculed, men were demasculated uh, or emasculated, uh, it wasn't really very, very good. I, I think we see that changing a bit. I don't have any evidence to back me up, but I just sense it. But there was a time where um, all the things that the feminists would say about men were being a part of the American psyche, you know, and um, on a personal level, I never let that happen. You know, Pete knows me pretty well. I'm a pretty strong, bullheaded Italian, and so if you come at me with something, I'm going to come right back at you, and I have. Um, <clears throat> but I think that... I think that it's changing where there's a, a better equilibrium of the roles of the sexes. You're still going to have people out there that are living in this ancient stereotype type of thing where uh, women are being um, – I don't have a correct word for it – but are, are being um, – really into this feminist stuff, what I sense is happening is that um, what I sense is happening is that they're becoming very lonely because men aren't going to buy into that, are not going to be attracted to you if that's the way you're going to treat them. Um, and I think in this loneliness, um, certain attitudes have changed. So I see an equilibrium happening. But we're not out of the woods, you know, um, because we're just, we're just not out of the woods. And, and so, you know, it's, it's not a matter of letting your guard down. It's a matter of diligence and being vigilant, you know, being vigilant as to being proud of who we are as men, being embracing of that masculine genius that says we're leaders, protectors, and providers, and that's who we are, and that's who we are going to be. My attitude is a little bit crass, which isn't a good thing, but it is what it is. And and my response is take us or leave it. Just take it or leave it. This is the way we are. This is how I am. If you're Okay, with that, then let's shake hands and let's go have a cup of coffee together. 
If you're not, well then, find somebody else. And I understand, Steve, this stubborn Italian gene. <laughs> it, uh, <laughs> it, it plagues many of us. It's baked right in. <laughs> it's, it's part of the goods. <laughs> but honestly, what are we being stubborn about? Something that, that's wrong or something that's good? You know, something that's pure or something that's evil? If we were being stubborn about something that's wrong or something that's evil, different story. When you're being stubborn about what God wants, how he created us. That's good stubbornness. You know, yeah. this is, this is a good one. And Steve and I have talked about that. His wife, Jan's wonderful. Um, and, uh, and I know that now. And, you know, after meeting her and they, you know, had Joe Aquilante and us at the house, um, and I at the house, but I was blessed with a really wonderful wife also, Trisha. And she's interesting. She was raised. So post, post, um, sexual revolution, post feminism culture, right? <laughs> Um, she was raised in a house where four girls were no less than, than men are. And that was very, you know, clear and made very clear verbally. And, you know, and so she, they, all four girls went to college. They got their degrees. Education was super, super important. Trisha went back and did her graduate work at Villanova for her nurse practitioner. She's, you know, worked here at, you know, Penn Presbyterian hospital. But I was, you know, comparing notes with Steve and I was sharing with him that as a man, Trisha being more of a woman actually allows me to be more of a man. It's such an interesting dynamic that if she pushed, 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 you know, woman, 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 and and was emasculating me, me, then something was going to, to break in our marriage or in our family, or I was going to wind up taking on a new role, a different role. But she didn't do that. It was actually one of the most beautiful things I ever witnessed. We had our children, and then... After we had our children, Trisha all of a sudden decided she's not going to be a nurse practitioner. She never finished her clinical, and she loves being a mom, and she's going to stay home with the kids. And before you know it, that's she, now we have seven children. So Steve and I have talked about that, and I said, man, it's so interesting for me, Steve, because what you're describing, I'm living it out over just just recently, these last 15 years. It's, you know... And it's been, it's been interesting for me that shout out to Mark Halk and the Kingsmen is that this, this leader, protector, provider, how God created us, he, he didn't have it wrong. He had it right. That's who he wants us to be. Different, slighter, you know, versions or variations thereof, but that's what he created us. And the more that women um, are comfortable in their skin, if you will, and they are, you know, take on their feminine role in society, which you were describing a little bit yesterday, Andrew. I mean, literally down to their parts that we don't have. <laughs> we'll never be able to do what they do. What's that makes them so beautiful and unique and special? It actually allows me to be more of a man like you were describing, Steve. So now I'm seeing this healthy masculinity that I didn't have just a short 20 years ago. But now I'm growing into it also as a husband, as a father, as a worker. This is... Yeah, I mean, we have to make a distinction as to the unhealthy masculinity and the healthy masculinity. You know, um, my father and his brothers, well, my mom's brothers and stuff, they they were always the... I can't put my finger on it, but they... Um, let their presence be known, and I don't think... in. In hindsight, I don't see that they really spoke to my mother and my aunts in a way that was becoming of who, of their dignity as, as to who they are. But that's that was the, the, 
that was the the environment that they grew up in. You know, my wife um, is the youngest of of three older brothers, and growing up, she had to stand up to them, and she made them know that she wasn't going to succumb to what they wanted their little sister to do, and that attitude as was a learned attitude and. Uh, part of our marriage together because there's certain things that I could get away with and there are certain things that I am not going to get away with. And that's fine. That's great. You know, it, it was it was a learning experience for all of us. And, you know, um, but I do remember my wife saying one time, she, we were at a gathering here at the Archdiocese and one of the women who belonged to some one of the groups, she's a young, a young lady, <clears throat> and she said to... Um, my wife, she says, uh, so you're going to keep him in shape, right? And so my wife looked over at her and said, I could ask my husband to do everything, anything, and he will do it. I could tell my husband to do something, and he won't do it. Which was the connotation that, you know, she's not going to order me around because she knows she can't, she can't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, and vice versa, actually. Because I can't get away with doing that either. But why are we why are we even thinking on those terms? So I think that the dynamic, I think the beauty of the masculine genius that um, you know Pete was was kind of talking about, leader, protector, and provider. The the beauty of that is that it allows us to be who we are, and it allows us to have standards with the people that we date, the people that we marry. You know, um, without diminishing the value of the other, which is where right. the true equality comes. That's in. right. I love that, Steve, because to me, as you're talking, all I'm thinking is Proverbs twenty-seven, seventeen: "Iron sharpens iron." You yeah. know, by the woman and the man being authentic and true to themselves, we're actually making each other better and stronger. Not, That's right. Yeah, not weaker. It's right. actually. Real equality. <laughs> yeah. It's so interesting, um, Steve, what you were talking about, how the 60s was a kind of um, demonic revolution. It was mm. a demonic era. I was listening to this. Um, uh, Thomas Merton was talking about this, uh, where there's like they talked about how the Greek fathers would talk about there being different parts of the soul, the animus, the anima, and then like if, there's, if that's combined properly, the spiritus. And he was saying that it's interesting that the devil pitched Eve, he pitched our, our feelings, our emotions. He pitched the feminine side. That's who he went to. He didn't go to Adam. He went to Eve. So this 60s revolution, in a way, was this, hey, forget all these rules. Forget all that stuff. It's just feel, let it all hang out. Let it all feel good. It feels good to have sex with everybody that you want to have sex with. It feels good to throw off the shackles of this patriarchal nonsense. So it's very interesting, the rejection of the father, the rejection of the rules laid out by the father as the sexual revolution unfolded. An interesting, another interesting point, um, so I think there's an interesting relation there. The other one is that there's this great book written by this woman, I think her name is Helen Andrews, and she's a millennial woman. And she, the book's called Boomers. So it's an indictment, her indictment of, let's say, the boomer generation. And she said, look at three basic building blocks of society. And look at where they were in 1945 and look at where they are today in 2020. Number one, faith in the toilet. It's nowhere. You know, the nuns, it's all, everybody's running away from traditional religion. Number two, family. 
what's our divorce rate? Pete and I were talking about this on the podcast yesterday. In certain communities, it's up to 75%. In the nation as a whole, 50%. And then the third is patriotism. Everybody hates our country, right? It's all systemically broken. It's a mess. It's terrible. It's terrible, right? She's saying these basic things that people need, basic nutrition for all of human history has been degraded, was degraded in this revolution somehow. All of this is like, just went off a cliff. And so I was curious if you guys, either of you have any perspective on this sort of how the sexual revolution was in itself a way of a rejection of God, a rejection of, of the ultimate father. Go ahead, Steve. Uh, it, I was thinking, by the way, this is so funny, Andrew, because it, it, it's the Father Beadricki episode where it's right back to the garden ag- again, interestingly enough. And we <laughs> there's our supposed to be our foundation, right? But but go ahead, Steve. Well, yeah, the, you take it. Look at the dynamic of the garden, though. You know, um, he, the devil approached the woman and said, did God really say, you can't do this, that, or the other thing? And what I always got out of that conversation was that the woman tried to, um, the woman tried to make God's words better or stronger. She says, no, God didn't say we couldn't eat of any of the trees of the garden, just the tree of the knowledge and good and evil that we shouldn't eat, nor shall we touch. Well, God did not say anything about touching. All he said was eating. And that was that fallacy that plays into the devil's strength that was able to move in because she already started now to crack, make a crack in the system. And so when he finally got her to do it and she gave it to her husband who ate it, he did not step up the plate of his masculine genius and did it. Now, if he would have stepped up to the plate, we would I believe and that we would be in a totally different place right now spiritually you know there's some theologians that say well would the fall have happened well i don't know the answer i don't know if anybody would know the answer to that but at the same time it's the voice of the masculine and the feminine speaking as one that either causes our downfall which it did or would cause our glory, if you will. We see this wonderfully in the story of Mary and Jesus. Be it done unto me according to your word. Not my will, Father, but your will be done. Jesus in the garden, Mary at the Annunciation. The masculine and the feminine said yes to God, canceling out the masculine and the feminine and feminine no to God in the garden. Yes. You have to be able to speak as one and when you do that, either bad things happen or good things happen. Yes. You see what I'm saying? Yes. And so... Steve, fast forward, the first public miracle. Mary and Jesus again. That's right. Do what he tells you. Do with whatever the wine, he tells you. Right? 
And yep. he doesn't want to. Mother, it's not my time. Yeah. Right? But she says yes. So now he has to say yes. Because the woman has given her yes. And then he says yes. And now she says, do whatever they tell you. Do whatever he tells you. So she's yeah. the second Eve. Yes. She's the second Eve, yeah. And we can't... I would caution the idea that Jesus had to do this. I would probably want to say that Jesus did it because he knew. Maybe to show us, yeah. Because he knew. You know, that this is this is the way it's got to be. And so how do we look at this in our in our marriage? How do we look at this in our family life? Well, it's the same principle. You know, um do whatever he tells you. You know, I remember one time <clears throat> I came home from work and my son and my and my wife were battling out over something. And <clears throat> so I'm letting it happen. I'm not saying anything because I, I, I didn't have a dog in that fight and I didn't want to have a dog in that fight. And so they were battling it out. <clears throat> and uh, after it quieted down, I said to Brad, I said, what's going on? And he said, well, I wanted to go down the shore with my friends because he had this – and they were great kids, uh, guys and girls. I wanted to go down the shore. Well, that made my wife nuts. She goes, you're not going to do that. She goes, no, 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 no. And he didn't understand it, so it just didn't work. So I sat back and I said, well, let me think about this for a little bit. I understand where you are and I trust your friends and you, but I also understand where your mom's coming from. So let me just think about it. I'll get back to you. So he went and did his thing. And about a half hour later, he comes back to me and he says, well, I don't think I'm going to go. And I said, why? And he goes, well, because you're right. And, um, you know, if it, if, if it makes things better, I'll stay home. Mm. Well, I was very proud of him. At the same time, I had to let him use his masculine genius to come to terms with something, you know. And not that my wife was doing anything wrong. She was reacting like a mom would react. But at the same time, he had to be affirmed in who he was. And I had to be that vehicle for that <clears throat> so and that was a lesson to me you know I, I, I'll never forget that you know <clears throat> and so um, I think there's something to be said about the quiet um, affirmation that dads give their children because you know he's a young man we were like that too. If my father said something that he didn't want me to do and he was forceful about it, I'd do it anyway. Get in trouble, but I would do it anyway. Hmm. My father never reasoned with me. <clears throat> and I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, or, but that's their generation. You know, dad says it, you do it. Okay, well, I've always, <laughs> oh God, I always got in trouble because I always wanted to know why. And he says, because I said so. And I would think to myself, well, that's not a good answer, you know, and I would always get in trouble because of that. 
And I guess maybe in dealing with Brad, I had to come to the realization that if I expected that when I was his age, then he's going to expect that from me. And I had to give that to him. You know. So. And Steve, as you were just talking before and about about your masculine genius, it just made me think that you're right. That was an opportunity for Adam. And and in Matthew Kelly's new book, uh, Dynamic Catholic, uh, his new book, Holy Moments, um, there's a lot of talk of this, of of each and every little moment in our lives is a holy moment where we make a left turn or a right turn. And in these little decisions, these little daily decisions, these little holy moments, as he would call them, are our opportunities. And gosh, that was a holy moment for Adam right there. So Eve got a little bit weak. She did. And that happens not because she's a female, because in some cases the male's going to be weak and then the woman strengthens, you know, the male in that situation. Um, And we're supposed to be there complimentary for each other. But Adam did get weak and that was an opportunity. And it's funny, Dr. Scott Hahn says, um, he says, you know, what does Adam do immediately is he points to Eve and blames her. But the woman (laughs) you gave to me, (laughs) she, she, you know, because of course, you know, we love pointing the finger at others. We don't like taking it, the brunt of it, you know. Pete, Pete, you would know that there's an old Italian saying is that when you point one finger at that somebody else got three pointing back at yes, you. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's oh, so true. So Adam, yeah, Adam definitely pulled that one, you know, in the garden. And but I think that the, those are um, those are our opportunities as men, and that's where our masculine genius comes from. And and Steve, now from your own life, you were fostering it with your own son, Brad, so mm-hmm. that he can start to develop it. Mm-hmm. So, Steve, I, we we actually um, we have to end the podcast um, next couple of minutes. What? And yeah, absolutely. Um, so I wanted to, maybe we could end in prayer. Sure. And I, I really appreciate you uh, and everybody inviting us into the Archdiocese um, to uh, to record today the Men for Life podcast. And Steve, you've taken the time. And, and um, so maybe we, Pete, you could, you could uh, throw a prayer up for us and... Uh, Okay, we'll end uh, we'll end this episode of the Men for Life podcast. Absolutely, I would love to. Yeah, so nice. Thank you, um, uh, both of you guys for my my co-host here, Andrew, who um, I love dearly. He's become a very very good friend, and uh, and for Steve, thank you for your friendship and for being on with us and for all of your knowledge in this area uh, that you bring. Um, we appreciate you very very much and your role. Here amen. in our Catholic Church, uh, in the name of name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen. amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to Thy protection, implored Thy help, or sought Thy intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, we fly unto Thee, O Virgin of Virgins, our Mother. To Thee we come; before Thee we stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not our petitions, but in Thy mercy hear and answer us, Amen. Our Lady of Fatima, pray for us. Pope John Paul II, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. All right, signing off. Thanks, gentlemen.